remember crossing the line as a world champion and it was one of the most confusing two weeks of my life I've ever had because I realised that what I really enjoyed was the challenge of trying to do it. Hi everyone and welcome to another star-studded episode of 80% Mental with me Dr. Pete Olusharga. If you've been listening, you'll know that in this third series of the podcast, I've been trying to explore the psychology of as many different areas of sport performance as I can. And so far, we've looked at the psychology of endurance, the psychology of the coach, and then we got a bit more creative in the last episode, exploring the psychology of dance with first soloist for the Royal Ballet Birmingham kit holder and expert in the psychology of dance, Dr. Sanna Nordin Bates. Today, though, we're going to change direction again and explore the psychology of speed. I want to get into the minds of athletes who go fast. And I mean really fast. I'm not talking about Usain Bolt fast. I'm talking about top speeds of over 225 miles an hour. What's the motivation? How do you deal with the risk? What are some of the psychological skills involved in going that fast? And I've got two amazing guests here with me to talk about the psychology of speed. So it's with great pleasure that I introduce my first guest, James Toesland. James is a two-time Superbike World Champion and a musician, and the only man to have won the Superbike Championship for two different teams, two different manufacturers, is that right? Uh, There's only two of us that have won the two different manufacturers, yep. Um, well, James, welcome to uh, 80% Mental. Really pleased that you could uh, you could be here. Absolute pleasure, Peter. And I'm also really pleased to welcome, or, or should, I suppose I should say welcome back, uh, Shamima Youssef to the podcast. Uh, Shams is a sports psychologist, registered mental health counsellor, uh, and has a private practice, Empowered to Perform. And Shams works across the globe in culturally diverse environments of Olympic sport, youth performance, and in the corporate industry and in the corporate industry too. Uh, that's twice I've introduced you and twice I've fluffed it, Shams, on this <laughs> one. Um, but you, you, second time on, so you're officially a friend of the show now. Isn't that a privilege? It's an honor. Thanks so much, uh, Pete. And actually, I just want to say, so you might confuse the the audience switching between Shamima and Shams. Uh, Shamima is my given name. Uh, Shams is uh, my nickname. Uh, both have meaning, um, even though mom would prefer that you use my full name. But we'll go with Shams for today. Fair enough. <laughs> and uh, you're also uh, the lead psych for UK Motorsport now, is that right? Oh, that is correct, yes. I um, I work with them um, as a consultant, but um, we're sort of trying to build out more uh, of a team um, to engage on various aspects of the pathway. Okay, awesome. Well, I'm looking forward to picking your brains uh, this afternoon a little bit. Um, James, I want to I start with you, though, because our, our listeners may or may not be familiar with superbikes or just racing in general. So I just wondered if you could give us a bit of a flavor of what's what's really involved. Oh, well, <clears throat> when you get to superbike level or MotoGP level, there's two main categories that you can watch, really. Um, um, one's prototype racing, that they just make the bikes for racing, and that's MotoGP, like Formula One, uh, where you can't really buy the technology. And then there's superbike racing, which is the production-based racing, where you can buy the bikes in the shops that we race around the tracks. And 
predominantly I had, I had a career in the Superbike Championship, the production-based one. That's where I won the championships. I had two years in MotoGP and had two great years there. I was in the Yamaha camp with Colin Edwards and Valentino Rossi and, and Jorge Lorenzo. And um, I, I was lucky. I was I was pretty fast as, as a youngster and, and I got into world championship early. I was, I'm still the youngest world champion because of that, um, because I, I started so young. But it's basically uh, boys and girls flying around motor, well, race circuits at 225 miles an hour uh, for 35 minutes, 40 minutes, uh, which is normally a race distance. And uh, once the lights go out, we don't have any pit stops. Uh, we go from the off and then to the checkered flag. And uh, whoever crosses the checkered flag first uh, uh, is victorious. And, uh, and we traveled around the world, obviously, as well. It was a world championship. So we raced in uh, Australia and Japan and America and all around the globe. And uh, it's, uh, it's a fascinating um, hobby <laughs> uh, turned profession uh, that was, uh, which was very, very fun. And um, uh, that's motorcycle racing. Awesome. And, you know, you said that uh, you started quite young. What what really drew you to that in the first place? Were you uh, always kind of, you know, did you always have sort of a need for speed? No, well, I had I had an itch to um, to scratch, that's for sure. When I was a kid, I was quite hyper um, uh, as a child and, and always looked at the uh, quite risque kind of hobbies. And just, just in general, I just needed to burn a lot of energy off. And then my mum met a new boyfriend when I was eight years old. Um, my mum and dad split when I was three and then she met uh, this new boyfriend who had a motorcycle and that's where it all kicked off. Um, and um, I went from playing the piano because my, my grandmother was a, a fabulous piano player and she taught me. So I was grade six at, at um, around around 14 years old, I was grade six and I was going to go to London College of Music and I'd got it all sorted out and I'd got it all planned. And then this guy mo walked into my mum's house with a leather jacket on and a and a motorbike outside and I said, well, I'd like one of those for Christmas. And he did. And that's the, the rest is history. And of course you won the uh, world superbike championship, uh, like I said, twice in 2004 and 2007. Yeah. Yeah. One with Ducati, Italian manufacturer, and then the other one with Honda. Yeah. So obviously a fairly successful career, but I wonder if you can remember to the first time that you, that you raced like competitively raced, I mean, if you can even remember that. Yeah, vividly. Um, I think everybody's, uh, with especially speed, uh, there's certain things in life which which stick with you. I think the memory, it, it just ingrains. And that's usually adrenaline and fear and bereavement. Um, uh, they're, they're the kind of big emotions where things stick with me, and, and I remember vividly uh, the, the emotion that it was... Uh, it was at uh, Cadwell Park, which is a racetrack near Lincoln. And I was on a, a little Kajiba 80, my first road racing bike. And uh, I was going around there and um, just, I just had an immediate kind of, um, I, I knew I'd found my thing. Yeah, I, I, I just did not want to get off that bike. Uh, if you could have refueled as I was going around, that would have been great. <laughs> I just kept going. Um, and I was very, very fortunate um, to have a, a stepdad almost that um, that introduced me to something that I, I fell in love with because as you know one of the things that I have been really fortunate in my life is I, I was introduced to two things that I just couldn't not do. I can't not I still play the piano um, most days and 
I, I don't ride motorcycling anymore because I, I got injured, but um, I was very, very lucky as a kid to be introduced as two things I absolutely adored. That's fantastic. And I, I'm going to get into, like, obviously the podcast episode is about the psychology of speed. And you mentioned a couple of things there um, that I want to come back to a little bit later on. But I want to bring Shams in here as the, the psychologist. Uh, like I mentioned earlier, he's got some experience working in motorsport, lead psych for uh, British Motorsport. Shams, in the work that you do, what do you see as some of the mental challenges of, of racing? The fear factor is is definitely one aspect that I um, work with a lot in in motorsport, and I've seen quite a bit. Uh, but I think you know the interesting thing there is that um, that fear or that pressure seems to increase a little bit when conditions change. So thinking about the psychology of speed, I think, you know, if you put yourself on a, on a level playing, on a level uh, racetrack, for instance, no one around you, all you need to do is A to B straight, zoom down, down that lane with nothing in your way. The, the level of fear or, or that pressure is not necessarily as heightened as to when you are surrounded by others in the race um, other other cars, other bikes, perhaps around you, uh, having to navigate corners, having to navigate different conditions on the track, etc. So I always sort of say that we have to train our mindsets to be able to lean in to the various conditions and to adjust to the conditions that arise in in in, in a race. Okay, and and, and James, you know, to, to the viewing public. It, it does look dangerous. Um, you know, a while ago, <laughs> I was going to say a while ago, uh, a student of mine explored the idea of robust sport confidence. Yeah. And he, he did this in what we perceive to be dangerous sports. And he found that riders and uh, people in kind of other sort of dangerous, like jockeys, for example, um, because of the like meticulous preparation that went into performance, they didn't really see it as dangerous in the same way that, you know, me sat at home watching it might see it dangerous, uh, see it as dangerous. Yeah. I, I wonder if you've got any thoughts on it. Did you see it as something that was, you know? No, no. I think if you see it as dangerous, I, th- I think it, it's time to, to stop. Um, mm. Definitely. I think you can train the eye with almost anything. And when you go from the smaller bikes that do 30 miles an hour, 40 miles an hour, the brain is processing the information at that speed at a young age where your brain's at as well because one of the one of the difficulties now is parents are starting their children into sport so much younger than it used to be that that the brain's got to process those things um uh, so much earlier which is which is not an easy thing to do and but when you get up to the slightly bigger bikes and slightly bigger bikes um uh, what uh, Shams was talking about there with what is actually on the track um, triggers those self-preservations almost. Um, there's very little on a racetrack because uh, the perceptions are on the track. Like I'm not going 220 miles an hour and I'm passing a, a, the number 156 bus to London at, at 40 miles an hour. You know, I'm go- everybody's going 220 miles an hour. There's no trees. There's no lampposts flying past at close proximity. Everything's far away. So 
if I can make a comparison, when you're on an aeroplane doing 500 miles an hour, you look out the window, you feel like you're doing 30 miles an hour, unless something flies past at a similar speed, then you realize just how fast you're going. And that's a similar thing on, on a motorcycle. Your eyes have got used to processing that information at that speed, um, which then um, it becomes normal. And when something becomes normal, it doesn't become dangerous because you can stay in control, essentially. So, so starting young is pretty important then. Is that fair to say most riders start pretty young? I, I think um, I think starting anything early, you get better quickly in a, in a shorter space of time. Um, but depending on what sport it is, because we've just upped the minimum age at world championship level now to 18 and it used to be 16. And what we've realized over the last 10 or 15 years is these kids are on these tracks now at five, six, seven. And by the time they are 15, they have the riding capabilities of an adult, full-time professional. They are, they have the, the, the riding skills, the skill set, with the worrying concept of, of, of lack of uh, fear that we were just talking about. Uh, and the combination of that with with being juvenile and kind of not making the right decisions at the right time because you're not experienced enough has been a dangerous situation for these kids at racetracks and there's been a few fatalities over the last few years and we've now the adults have come in and said we need to protect these kids from themselves let's make it 18 before they can go at these speeds on these racetracks um, because they're obviously they're capable of it, but they're not making great decisions at 16. So it's an interesting kind of period on 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 us on us kind of monitoring that and trying to make the best call on keeping these kids safe, doing a dangerous sport. Mm. Shams, what are you thinking about this? It's, it's kind of yeah. Thanks for bringing me in there because I have a couple of thoughts and and perhaps even a question for James on that because it, I find it interesting that. You sort of say, you know, at 16, they don't necessarily have the experience. Um, <clears throat> yet, if they've been training from five years old um, and been thrown into, and, and the degree of difficulty increases on their journey, could it be that it is more a case of the fact that in decision making, in a youth brain has still not fully developed? And so their risk taking is greater. As a, as a youth in that, you know, they may lean into more risk-taking because they, their decision-making processes and, and, and the, the prefrontal cortex responsible for those decision-making processes are not as um, developed um, as perhaps an adult in, in their sort of mid-20s to late-20s. So um, I, I was just thinking about that, actually. Yeah, 100%. And I think... I think we've all been 16. I mean, I'm struggling to remember myself <laughs> with all these rules on. But um, um, I remember I, I, if I, I would, I would, I would say I would be able to conquer the world at 16 with mm. with how I approach my sport. And um, but there's a famous commentator said that something which was quite poignant. He said these young kids don't know what they can't do yet, mm. and it's it's that, and. And it's that that we just need as adults, as experienced adults, um, to protect them, to protect this raw ambition without consequence. Um, and I think it's very important we do so.
So James, I'm really interested then, you know, in, in this, this line, or is there a line between having a healthy level of, I don't want to say fear, maybe more respect for the risk involved and, and what you're doing and just going out there and being that supremely confident kid, like how do you manage that balance between those two things? Or how did you manage that balance? Well, I, I think what we're doing by just increasing the age to 18, we're just hoping that the natural um, human brain can at 18 just make those slightly better judgments and have more respect for themselves. That's the important thing here is having respect for yourself so you can have respect for everybody else on the circuit. Um, yeah, I mean, whew, I mean, I, 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 on a personal note, um, the, the guy that started me in racing committed suicide when I was 16 years old, and I didn't, um, I didn't have him around for my whole career, and, and that was really difficult. And, and, I, and I certainly had no, I, I didn't really have any respect, not respect, but I didn't have any reservations at all about um, winning or, 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 or risking my life to do so. Suicide is a tricky thing because I think when it comes to sports people, I don't, I don't think any professional sports people, especially kind of where you've, you're, you're fighting something within and then you're doing it externally. And, um, and that, that was certainly my kind of experience um, personally with that tragedy that I then put into my racing. And I was quite, you know, I was possibly a danger to myself with how little I, I, I had respect for life because I was given that example of, of that could be an option for you. Uh, mm. I know it's a complex one to, to kind of like describe of the way I kind of filtered that into my profession, but I don't think I would have been a double world champion if it wasn't for the frustrations and the unanswered questions. And the um, and as, as, a, as an option to life, you know, whether, whether you die naturally, you take your own life, or I die on this racetrack today, so be it. Uh, and, and, I, and that certainly gave me a super... Um, uh, mental uh, advantage o over most because I don't think many people risked as much as I did because of that. Well, first of all, thank you for sharing that uh, sharing that story with us. But I, I guess my sort of follow up question would be: Did you ever feel like you sort of got that balance a little bit wrong? Um, f for the job I was in, no. For life, God, yes. <laughs> hmm. um, I would. Uh, uh, because the biggest, I, I got injured 11 years ago and I was only 29 years old and I was still com very competitive and, and, it, and it immediately stopped my career because I, I um, dislocated all my bones in my wrist so badly that I had to have it fused and, um, and um, it's, you know, it's, uh, uh, without the right wrist bending and having movement in it, it's impossible to ride motorcycles professionally. So that was a huge shock. Uh, that the, My biggest issue was was letting all of that go because... I'd manifested the hurt and the frustrations of what happened at the beginning of my life and career with, with motorcycle racing as an ammunition. You know, if, if, if the competition got faster, if I, if I moved up a category that was harder, um, I, I used all of that and, and kept chucking that on the bonfire and embellishing it to, to give me more determination to succeed at the next level. And it worked. But when I didn't have the um, objective or the, uh, or, the, or the sport to filter that into, uh, just uh, um, having 
a normal life, it uh, I realised that I'd not recovered or, or even dealt with um, all of those issues because I used them as 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 as, as, as an advantage, and they were very much um, uh, in the way of 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 me kind of uh, recovering from the the stress of of losing my career uh, so so quickly and. and um, uh, yeah, it was. It was. It's been. It's been a good decade, twelve years now. Of that has been the main thing of of getting a balance where I don't need to do that. I don't need all that on my on my back to uh, to succeed in life. Shams, I want to bring you back in here as well. You know, you've been sort of listening to uh, to James's story there. What do you make of some of the things that we're hearing here about about using those life experiences as as fuel, and then maybe the transition from uh, racing to, to life after racing. There's a couple of things to unpack there, I think. Yeah. Um, James, uh, again, really appreciate you sharing your story there. Um, you mentioned that actually you, you very much saw it as having a job and a life. And, um, I, you know, it's an interesting perspective because actually clearly for you, the the difficulty, the trauma that you had experienced became your fuel for success. But I guess what comes up for me when thinking about this is how are we defining success? Um, and and, and is, is success defined by um, racing medals, uh, titles, rankings, or is racing success defined by a lifestyle um, and, and enjoyment and, um, you know, a passion. So, so there, there, there's that that was coming up for me. And, and clearly, though, you know, it was a motivating factor for you. But then you also really mention how you got injured, sadly, um, which left you out of the sport. And um, how did that make you feel when you you know, could no longer continue in your sport? And what was it that you were able to turn to? Did you feel necessarily that there was a bit of an empty space and that you had to now figure out what else in life? And so I guess where I'm coming from is that, you know, can the job and the life become the lifestyle, the life and the job that you see separately or saw separately, could they be combined so that the individual is developing an identity beyond you know the the, the uh, what they do day to day in the sport and and was that something that you ever thought about uh you know in your career not in the career but very much so on on the few days where i realized after my second operation on the wrist and uh the 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 bones didn't settle into the correct place which then left me with no movement on the wrist um, I immediately knew that I wasn't going to be able to uh, compete anymore. It was it was frustrating because we get injured quite a lot as motorsport racers, and the amazing uh, the amazing surgeons that look after us. Um, I think we've uh, we've got a bit complacent that uh, doesn't matter what it is, it can be fixed, and um, uh, it's 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 quite uh, it's diff it's a difficult one when you are in front of medicals and they've said that's all we can do for you uh, and now you've got to live your life for the rest of your life with with a wrist that doesn't move because um, not only was it difficult 
because of my racing career, it also made playing the piano really difficult as well. Um, mm. So, but identity very much was the one of the key points. To be a sportsman, the problem is it's a twenty four seven job because it's what you eat, it's what you sleep, and it's what you focus on. It is quite intrusive on a twenty four seven basis, um, and we all, as we get better and stronger and more experienced at something. Uh, along the way we 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 understand why we are getting better and faster and stronger at something and by the time you get to being the best in the world at something which you know takes at least a decade of practice mostly you find yourself at that level uh, you realize that um, you, you do everything routine everything is a routine on on what you've picked up to be the best version of yourself and to try and better that the, the next day and if you can imagine the intensity of that day in day out to that level of scrutiny when you don't have the uh the the, the challenge and objective in front of you to even apply that to you're just left with um brushing your teeth and putting your deodorant on and your aftershave on in a certain way and putting your socks on right foot first and you know and, and, and you know and and, and, and increasing your training strength and cardio and, and doing all these things, um, it, it's, it's for nothing uh, all of a sudden. And that's very, very difficult. I suppose it's a, you know, it's a bit like when, when Superman wanted to give his powers away for, for his girlfriend uh, because he just wanted to be normal. And then he realized um, that his, his powers really kind of help people. And that kind of, you're, you're torn between living an obsessive life and a selfish life, we can, which can lead a lot of people down a rabbit hole that they sacrifice so much that at the end of it, um, like you say, what? How do you quantify success? Are you just going to sit in your house with with no family, no girlfriend, no wife, uh, and just a huge, nice, big, nice, massive trophy in the corner? People don't really discuss what the end goal or objection here is of what you're trying to achieve because. I remember crossing the line as a world champion at 23 years old and it was one of the most confusing two weeks of my life I've ever had because I realized that what I really enjoyed was, was, was the challenge of trying to do it. And when you sat there with your children, you've actually done it, especially personally, because my stepdad wasn't there and I'm thinking, Christ, what, well, what, what, what was I doing that for? He's not even here to even see it. And it was really difficult to then re-motivate yourself to just doing it again. And when you've achieved the ultimate goal in, in any sport, if you're lucky enough to, um, then that's the only point ever that do athletes have that experience of, uh, oh, hang on a minute, it's not just been about a world champion, this, um, like mm. life, life, like it's this, hang on a second, it's not, it's not about that, but what is it about? And that's when, that's when the challenge of just trying to get a balance in life, then you start to you try and start to try and get some balance out in it, but um, it's it's not an easy one because of the level of dedication you need to put into being a world champion. Pete, do you mind? No, no, go ahead. So what I'm um, really hearing here, James, is that, you know, whilst you recognise that the need to develop your identity beyond the sport was important, there was the challenge that how do you make time for it? How do you make room for it, for, for developing these other identities these other interests and 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 defining success in different ways when actually the sport required 
an intense routine that didn't really give room to developing those other interests yeah. um, and, and devoting energy to yeah. to those other parts of who you would like to be as uh, in your identity. Yeah. And, and what also lacks as well with normal life, when, when you do retire especially, is the lack of reward you get from something compared to standing on a podium listening to your national anthem spraying champagne. I mean, the emotions listening to your anthem for you that you've 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 been the best in the world it's um you're a drug addict essentially uh, on the highest level of drugs that you can think of uh with 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 very little rehab at the end of it when you kind of come to a close with life itself and and that's another thing as well when you dedicate yourself to something so dramatically you're not really that good at anything else that you can get anywhere near the reward that you get for that <laughs> as well because um, um, you, if you get that good at something, the rewards are so great uh, that, uh, that whatever you else do, it's very difficult to get satisfaction from. Then chuck on the, the post-stress uh, disorder and, and, and the, uh, the depression from, from it going dramatically. If, if you're unfortunate enough to get an injury and, and lose it early, or, or even if you get to 40, 45 and you, and you retire naturally, um, your chemicals change dramatically in your brain to not have those things in your life that also makes it very difficult to kind of uh, develop new um, uh, things in your life, relationships in your life, identities in your life. James, what I'm hearing from you is that there's clearly conflict during your career between what it takes to be the very best and at the same time, thinking about how you might develop um, your identity beyond just your sport and the athlete that you are. Yet, now that you have um, been through this journey, do you think that perhaps it becomes important for all of us involved in sport to redefine success and uh, to think, you know, to, to redefine this success and, and to perhaps normalize the idea that, you know, we do need to make time for other aspects of our life or as, as part of the journey, as part of the career path, rather than thinking of it, you know, at a later stage when your career has come to an end. And yes, of course, coming to an end in one sport is a kind of, it, it is an ending. It is the grief, you know, is associated with that ending. Um, but can that process of um, starting out, the, you know, the process of ending begin earlier uh, so that you are better able to manage and cope with the emotions, the enormity of the situation when it does happen? Yeah, that's a difficult one. Yeah, I, I absolutely it, it it should, but um, the problem is with these kids that are being brought into motorsport. Um, they they haven't got the experience of what the fallout is of even when you win the world championship, you, you'll never be satisfied because an unsatisfied nature is quite key to being successful. Because. <laughs> um, the, the minute you get complacent um, as, a, as a professional sportsman is, 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 is a disaster. The goal is very much focused on 
being victorious, for even being able to carry on the path that you want to. If you can't focus on winning and it's just about competing and being the best you can be and it's just about getting respect off everybody, um, that would be great. That would be that would be lovely and that would be ideal for, for people's transition, that's for sure. But unfortunately, how the business is, um, it doesn't allow that very easily. I'm here with two times world superbike champion, uh, James Tosland and sports psychologist Shamima Youssef. And we're talking about the psychology of speed. And it's been a, a really fantastic and honest conversation so far uh, about um, some of the transitions from racing into post-racing life and some of the challenges and the, the, the risks involved and how we might perceive some of those risks. Um, we, we talked a little bit about crashes and, and injuries and perhaps sort of career-ending injuries, but the risk of injury is is ongoing in sports like this. And I, I wonder, you know, you, you experienced injuries that you did come back from, yeah? Yeah. And I, I wonder, like, how did you view sort of the pressure to get back on the bike and to score points for the team versus the need to take some time and, and properly heal uh, and how you, how you sort of saw that uh, again, the balance between maybe those two things. Ooh, that's, that's very imbalanced that one, because <laughs> you, you know, I mean, the, most contracts say that uh, you can miss one race with an injury and get paid, but we're not going to pay you after two races. And also the championships are obligated to put those bikes on the grid. So it's a full grid of racing with their sponsors so they will replace you uh, at the next race as well with a reserve rider. And if that reserve rider is a, a quite a young, uh, hot prospect that uh, jumps on your bike and does just as good, if not better, then you can imagine uh, uh, you're at home with a cast on uh, trying to cut it off in your mom's kitchen. <laughs> <laughs> you, you say that as if that's something that you've done. <laughs> Luckily, um, I was in the era of people not really casting stuff. It was all metal. Work. <laughs> right. um, I've got two screws in each ankle and, I had a 19-inch metal rod down my femur when I broke that badly, and obviously I've got the um, the right wrist is fused, and um, so there's been there's been quite a few um, quite a few injuries along along the way for sure, and and every one of those was the first question to the surgeon is how long is this going to take before I'm back on a bike again? Um, it's not hmm. it's not how long is is this going to heal? Going to take to heal? It's uh, when will he be back on a bike again? It always makes me smile that because I I always remember looking back when I was 16, 18, 20 with these injuries. Uh, and I'm not sure uh, how I expected the surgeon to know how long it was going to be before, even to how to ride a motorcycle like I did. So, <laughs> I, I always remember them looking at me going, well, if that's what you're doing, then uh, I'll probably be seeing you in here again at some point anyway. <laughs> so <laughs> I'll get some experience with you and I'll let you know next time. But it's, yeah, it's definitely an imbalance on that one. What I'm reminded of there, actually, James, is that, you know, you've got these external pressures or financial aspects, um, you know, someone else stepping into onto your bike. And so, you know, from a psych, psychology perspective, what we would help you to focus on and help any any rider out there focus on is really committing to the process of healing and really engage in what are the things that they can do to get themselves out there so that they can ride and so that someone doesn't take their position. What are the other things that you can do in the rest of your body 
to keep that strengthened, to keep that um, exercised? What are the mental parts of, you know, uh, your performance that you can still engage with? And I'm wondering if, if you worked with anyone during those injuries on some of those aspects. I did. It's it's just we found as we we still find it's very very difficult to exercise to to uh, to reenact what it is like riding motorcycles. Um, but but certainly if, if there was a place that was injured, we we focused on it to get it back up to strength again. And uh, like any big trauma, you can you can get the muscle mass back pretty quickly, but it's the endurance that you lose. Depending on what the area was, was was a huge bigger disadvantage or. or or lesser you know you just didn't really want it on your left foot because that changed the gear quite a lot so um you, you didn't want it on your wrists because that's where you, you controlled all the braking and the acceleration so um if it was to your if it was to your hips it wasn't so bad a little bit if it was your knee as long as you could bend it enough to get on the on the foot peg in in a crouched position so depending what injury you got depending on how restricted you were about riding the motorcycle but essentially, you are sat on a machine. So it was amazing with uh, if, if you got metalwork in there and, and they pinned and screwed things, which essentially kind of, you know, fixes it straight away almost without the bone actually knitting together itself. Um, you can, as long as you can put your foot in a boot and get your hand in a glove and get your leathers on, you can have a, have a go. The risky part of coming back too early with metal working, especially like with a 19 inch rod down my femur, which was in the middle of my femur bone, was if you crashed then again and then landed on it and then bent the rod. And then that would have obviously shattered the bone dramatically and been very difficult to remove and then extensive work to, to repair that again. So coming back from injury too early, depending on what injury you got with the risks involved, it wasn't maybe for what riding ability that you'd got. It was more how how what a risk it would be if he came off again and, and, and hit the same area. So, um, but yes, but the but the pressures to come back uh, as early as possible were there because of two things: you get replaced or you didn't get paid. So, Shams, you you um, you kind of heard about some of those external pressures there, and obviously, as the psychologist, perhaps working with the multidisciplinary team. You know, do you, as the psychologist working with that team, have a responsibility to protect the riders from themselves? You know, we talked about those perhaps young riders earlier who've got that confidence and just kind of want to get out there. Do, do you have that responsibility to protect them from themselves? I do think that it requires then discussing with the team and, you know, it, it's coming back to redefining the success. You know, you have... Um, you pick up an injury, and in other sports we see it too. You know, the, the athlete picks up an injury, and they want to get back to training quicker and faster, and because they want to get back out there. And actually, it's the responsibility of the team to sort of say, "No, we've given you a program to stick to, and we've got to manage that with you." And between all of us, that becomes the responsibility. Um, part of that responsibility as a psychologist is helping the team to redefine what success might look like when you go back out there to race because it may not necessarily need to be the fact that you're working towards winning that race but it might be that actually success in this race is going to look like you getting to uh, retrain um, and, and strengthen 
um, your endurance and and um, or maybe that's how you define uh, success for your first race back on the track. So in answer to Pete's question, yes, I do think there's a, a team approach to this, your manager, um, your trainer, the, the psychologist in, in really being on the same page um, as to managing some of those processes and how we define success when you get out back out there. Yeah, I think managing it is 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 critical to getting some kind of um, balanced approach to a return from injury. That's for sure. But because of the pressures that the riders are under to perform, because there's a, an endless conveyor belt of kids that aren't injured coming through behind you. If you are injured, then um, your time is numbered. Um, so what that then generates is the riders are very very secretive about how injured they are when they come back. And when they do that, then they don't discuss with the team what the capabilities are. Because when you're secretive about it and you, and you more or less say, you know, I'm, I'm back to I'm back to 100% again, I can't wait for this weekend, then your team approaches that weekend that you're going to be where you were when you last were on it. So that that is also one issue here in motorsport that uh, um, because of this endless conveyor belt of talent coming through and the pressures that are on your shoulders to come back from injury early and all the rest of it, um, you know, like when you when you keep information back because you don't want the team to know that your wrist is going to take another three months, and that might be your job over. Um, it can, uh, you know, you can see where the problems start. Yeah, on, yeah. So, 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 really, what I'm hearing is it's about a culture within the sport, um, and it would need a big cultural shift throughout the sport to really attend to some of this. Yet from an individual perspective with working with an athlete, I would also perhaps then consider, okay, so you're out for three months, right? Um, but you have a healthy body and, and you're working towards getting healthy and strong. Does it necessarily need to be career ending? Are there other options in which to pursue different avenues uh, where you can get back in even after three months? I'm only mentioning this because I, we've seen in other sports that, you know, athletes who have picked up chronic diseases, illnesses, if you like, for instance, a swimmer in America who was out of swimming for three years um, because she was diagnosed with a chronic bowel disease. Um, but over that three years, really paid attention to what what optimal care in, you know, with and how to manage her disease uh, to a point where she was then able to get back into training and strengthen and still come back as an elite professional swimmer. You know, it's, it's about redefining cult, uh, success, but it's about um, working on that culture within the sport, but also helping the individual to understand that it may not necessarily be the end of their career, despite the pressures around them. Yeah, I think, how do you get away from money in, in all of it? Because mm. it, it polarizes everything, doesn't it? And the issue at the minute, because uh, motorsport, it was banned from advertising tobacco in 2006 and um, the whole industry was on a bit of a, a false economy, shall we say, on what it paid people throughout the, the, the circus, including the truck drivers and the, the chefs and the hospitality people and the mechanics and the engineers and, and, the, and the drivers and riders. And um, when that 
when that went, um, energy drinks kind of picked up the baton uh, mostly with, with motorsport. But over the last decade, um, it's been very, very highly paid to be one, two, and three, but pretty averagely paid below that. There's a dramatic drop, say from, you know, the world champion earning 10 million quid to, to um, sixth to eighth place earning 150,000. It's those kind of dramatic drop-offs, which isn't helping. And when you invest so heavily to even get into this sport, like your parents have bought you a 5,000 pound motorcycle and they've spent 2,000 pounds on the gear that you wear with the helmets, boots and leather and gloves and the fuel that you have to pay for. And then you have to drive to the tracks. You have to enter the event. Uh, you have to pay for the tires. By the time your dad drives you back, he's probably spent a good 8,000 um, pounds. And if you're getting good and you're going through the ranks, um, I know the British Superbike champion, the winner of that championship last year, wanted to move up to world championship level. He was asked to bring money to the team. Imagine then putting £200,000 uh, into getting a ride into a team. What that injects of the importance of success now is, is winning. Mm. And that ain't helping, for sure, on all of us. Yeah, there's, yeah. there's always that bottom line, isn't there? Yeah. And I think... We have this debate in psychology all the time, don't we, about redefining success mm. and mm. like I, I fully believe in it, but I also recognize that it's very idealistic to think that we can redefine success when there, that there just is a bottom line. There always is and there always will be. So I don't know how we resolve that within sport. No. Um, James, you, um, you, you've talked a couple of times about other riders and having a sort of never-ending stream of young riders coming through. And obviously uh, in your sport, you or an individual rider, but you're also a part of a team a lot of the times. Uh, and two riders in a team, one of them is going to be a principal, one of them is going to be slightly slower. That's just kind of how things work generally. Um, can you talk to us about maybe the, the, the dynamics of that? Like how do you manage being a, an individual rider, but as part of a team and maybe the interplay between the two riders? 2004, um, on Wednesday afternoon, I got a flight to France to Charles de Gaulle Airport. I was 23 and um, I was five points behind um, my teammate in the same team in Ducati for the world championship at the last race in France. And he was French. <laughs> 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 so uh, whoever won that weekend in the two races that we had in front of the French crowd with my French teammate inside the same team, I don't think it becomes any more intense than that. You both, he'd never won before, I'd never won before. And we were both going for our um, childhood dream. And there was nothing on the planet that we wanted more than that trophy on Sunday. Um, and there was a, uh, there was a, there was a few kind of um, unnecessary uh, uh, strengthened handshakes between us. <laughs> 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 over the weekend and yeah. um i remember a few things in french that he didn't think i understood when he was talking to people what i understood uh, <laughs> and uh, and also the battle with the crowd as well you can imagine that uh, um uh, i certainly spoiled the party after i actually took the championship that particular day um but um 
it is serious. It's really serious. What happened that day in 2004, and that was my first championship, and I would have, I didn't realise, forevermore, whatever, whatever the success was of having the trophy and being a world champion or whatever, I'll tell you what doesn't go away, is forever I will be the world champion. Everything I do, even this interview I'm doing, is because you know we've got the double-time world champion on, on and, and we want his thoughts. Um, even though Regis Laconi, the, the rider that I was against in, in the same team, was very much just as talented as me as a rider at that particular year, even more so at the beginning, because I was young and I was still getting the hang of it. He was quite a bit faster than me at the beginning of it. Uh, the difference in his life of just being the runner-up, because he never won it ever after either, that was his last opportunity, were huge. The decisions he made in life and, and who he is now, uh, that, that defined who he was, and it does define you. And, and I'm very, very, I feel very, very lucky that actually on that particular afternoon, I was just bloody-headed enough and talented enough and got the opportunity to work with an amazing team on the right bike that day that I got that trophy. But, um, you know, uh, what is it, 18, 19 years now after that day, it, it's, it, it gives me, you know, it, it's hairs on, on your arms that stand up on on what that has brought to my life opportunity-wise and respect-wise uh, because I just did the better on that particular day compared to him is, is dramatic. It's really dramatic. Shams, is that something that you, you deal with in your work in motorsport, sort of team dynamics, group dynamics with uh, with, with racers and riders? You know, not necessarily at this uh, stage, but I think, you know, even as an individual competitor, you've always got a team around you. Um, and, you know, talking about team dynamics, yeah, we can think about the individual in team dynamics and, and how they they are not just out there on the track on their own. You have your engineering team. You've got someone on, you know, giving you direction on, on what's going on on the track ahead, behind, and so on. And so, learning to communicate effectively and work as a team and trust in those individuals around you becomes really important. But that's a different dynamic to what we're talking about here. Well, I, I, I the team wanted him to win because he was French and, and, and Ducati sold more Ducatis in France than they did the UK. Right. And um, by me winning that day, that wasn't their choice. Um, so much so that my team in the garage, uh, because there was no t-shirts, because usually you get t-shirts for all the team to celebrate. And you know, that you get the number one with the num your usual number in it. There was none of that. Um, uh, because they put all their eggs in one basket. They even wanted the World Superbike Champion to race the last race in the American Championship as a bit of a promotion because America was their biggest market. So the World Superbike Champion was going to go over to America to ride the last race in the American Championship. His flight was already booked before the weekend and he still had to go. <laughs> the goal as well within the team and the engineers and the riders compared to the goal of the manufacturers I think there's not enough understanding maybe for riders and engineers of what the what the ultimate goal is here. It's to sell motorcycles. Hmm. So on, on that on that day then, James, how, how did you rise to that challenge? You know, having essentially your own team, your own manufacturer kind of rooting against you, you know, kind of knowing all of that's going on. Like, 
what was it that was within you that thought, well, um, screw this? <laughs> well, that was pretty much it, to be honest. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, they did tell me that on the Wednesday before the weekend started, I got there and I had a meeting with the team. And they were honest enough. I mean, the, the manager, bless him, he was in a he was in a, a rock and hard place because he basically, James, there's so much organisation that we need to do here because it's gone to the last race in October. The last race of the American Championship is next weekend. We had to book the flights. We had to organise the T-shirts. We had to do all this. And we had to, he was five points in front of me going into this race. He was a French rider in France. I mean, if you were gambling, <laughs> he mm. would have put it all in his favour for sure. I mean, if they didn't want me to win that weekend, they could have done so. You know, I mean, I'm on a machine basically, and it wouldn't take too much for the machine not to work quite well, shall we say? Um, and that's one thing they didn't do. They give us equal machinery, and we were able to fight it out fairly. And that's why, um, even though I knew the plan, I knew what the objection was um, for Ducati. I knew the, um, uh, I knew the business, why they were doing it, and why they had to do this because of selling motorcycles it was separate for me just achieving my goal of being a world champion. I was like, it's like, yeah, I respect all that, but unfortunately, mate, I'm, I'm here to win. And, um, <laughs> it, it, it sounds to me, actually, James, that you um, you use that sort of external, those external aspects to motivate you, to fuel you, to, to, to drive you in your own performance. Yeah, it was the worst thing they could have done, told me all that on a Wednesday before the weekend. <laughs> you know, I, because... You can imagine I was 23 years old, so I was quite young, but I, I'd been doing it since I was 14, 15 years old. And, and this had been uh, this had been a good decade coming to to a close. And um, they, they didn't they didn't say to me all of that and then say, look, those team orders this weekend, you have to finish behind him if you don't mind. They said all of that and said, good luck. And I, and I was like, oh, well, uh, you know, you can imagine that it was in one ear and out the other by the time I'd walked out the door. Um, and I, I walked into the garage and, I got my personal trainer. <laughs> I had my personal trainer at that weekend, and I never took him with me, but he was always quite motivational. I never needed motivation to train, but he was he was just a good guy to have around. And um, and I went back to the, the the camper van that we had, and and I just told him the, the meeting, what the story. And we'd gone together to try and win the world championship. Went into the garage, got all the team rallied, all my engineers sat them all around. Right, come on, you know we need to get it together this weekend. And then I walked back and said, "Well, how the meeting go?" He was thinking that they were going to offer me a contract or something next year, you know, or, you know, because I'm, I'm battling, you know. Um, they made the decision he's going to win this week on the flight to America. And I said, you know, and, 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 and I told him, bloody likely. <laughs> <laughs> bloody likely that's happening. <laughs> Come on, we're having this. But yeah, it, it, uh, it rallied the troops massively. And it, and it sounds to me that. You know, when we talk about performance, we, we think about, you know, who, who are the people behind us that will still will support us, will be there for us, will drive us. You yep. still had someone in your corner. Um, you were just fueled even more towards actually uh, focusing on what you can do and, and winning that race for yourself. It was. But it, when I crossed the line, you know about the history about my stepfather wasn't there. And then when the team was muted because of the result, uh, it was like, hang on a second. I had a perception of what winning a world championship was going to be. I was swinging off chandeliers, um, pouring champagne all over my mum and, um, uh, and, and, and waking up with a huge hangover and, uh, uh, with, with all my engineers in bed with me, still cuddling each other. <laughs> <laughs> all of a sudden, I've, I've crossed the line. Um, 
uh, he's not there, and um, all the team now. And 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 I and I was respectful as well. I wasn't running around with a bottle of champagne because I knew I'd just taken his dream off him, my teammate. You know, so I was very respectful about that as well. So everything had to be muted because it was a very unusual situation where both riders go to the last race um, and challenge out for it. And he was in France, so you can imagine the amount of friends and family he had there because he was supposed to win. So um, the amount of responsibility a rider or a driver has on his shoulders, you've got, you've got yourself, you've got your family, you've got your friends, you've got the fans, you've got the people watching on television, and at world level, you've got the nation. I mean, I remember the headline in the motorcycle paper on the Wednesday before the event. I'm 23 years old, and I'm just starting to get the hang of it where I'm challenging for world championships. The headline was champ or chump, question mark. I mean, luckily I wasn't a chump that day, but I'm sure I wasn't even a chump by finishing second in the world. So, you know, there's another branch of this conversation as well of press, which, you know, I'm not sure when we'd end that one, but um, the the responsibility for professional sports people at a high level um, increases hugely when you get international because you haven't got just your, your mom and dad to please. You've got a whole other raft of people, sponsors, you know, endorsements and TV. And like I say, the fans and everybody's expecting it's, it's, uh, it's highly pressured. And so what's coming up for me then, James, is I'm thinking about with all these external pressures, with all these external distractions, what is it that, allowed you to just focus in the moment and 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 focus on the task at hand so that you could you know race with speed and make the decisions in the moment and eventually allow you to gain that title they say i think as human beings we can think about five to eight things when we're when we're just normally going about a day when nothing's really going wrong when we're under pressure or under threat or in danger that decreases to one or two because we have to focus it to make the right decisions at the right time. And it's how you cope with those one or two when you are that focused on something. And that's when the experience and the confidence, mostly confidence, because if you have got the confidence that you can pull this off, if it's within reach, and that's why I teach all the young kids, always keep your goals within reach because you'll constantly be confirming to yourself that you are capable of achieving this. So, so goals within reach are, are, are pivotal to people's development. And on that Sunday afternoon, when I was sat on the bike with three minutes to go and the whistle went, I was sat on the bike. I, I knew I could do it. There wasn't a question about I, I couldn't do it. It was just not making a mistake. The level of concentration and focus, like unwavering focus, 200 miles an hour for 35 minutes to do lap times within 0.2 of a second of each other is extreme and 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 that that's a learned thing that you 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 increase your ability to do that and on that particular day i think if i was 22 i might not have had all those jigsaw puzzles uh, pieces to put together but just luckily on that october day on october 3rd 2004 i with the 10 years of practice i sat there and I, I got the hang of it. I, I, I knew how to do it, everything from acceleration, turning in, braking, uh, 
my tactics, my race tactics against my other competitors that I'd ridden against for a few years as well. So I knew how they rode. I knew where their weaknesses and strengths were. I knew that track very, very well. I knew every single bump on every single corner. So all of this information that I'd gathered, everything I was doing that Sunday was subconscious because I'd learned it all. If you had to think about it, you, you, you're already behind the curve. I mean, to win a world championship on the last day against your teammate, um, that there's, if, if I listed them all, it's, um, is your is your is your gear ready? Is it clean? Is it ready? Leathers, boots, helmet, and gloves. Is the visor clean? Does it have the two tear offs, the plastic tear offs to tear off during the race? So if you get a big bug on the visor, can you get it off? Yes, you can. Earplugs. Are the earplugs are they in right? Are they so they don't shift out of the ways? Because if earplugs move, and you get the the wind buffet in in your ears, it's really off putting. So are they incorrectly? Yes, they are. Is the bike setting like you like it? Yes, it is. Are the team going to check everything? And are you confident in the team will have that bike prepared for you 100%? Yes, I am. Do you know the track? Yeah, I know the track really well. Every single corner, every single bump. So that's not a problem. It's it's, it's going to be a 35-minute race. You know, I've been training for an hour this week, so that's not going to be a problem. Um, so everything that you tick off, if, if just a five of those are questionable i don't really know the track that well i'm not that happy about the front end or the back end of the bike and da, 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 da. you're always already losing and i i won that race and won that championship that particular year because all that tick box i ticked off and if under pressure we can only really focus on one or two things well the only thing that i had to do was don't make a mistake wicked let's crack on I'm here with two times world superbike champion James Tosland and sports psychologist Shamima Youssef. And we've been having a really fascinating conversation about the psychology of speed. Uh, if you have been enjoying the conversation, uh, like, share, uh, retweet, all that stuff. Um, go and tell people about the podcast and how amazing it is. Uh, but you can subscribe at 80percentmental.com. Uh, where you can listen to all of our other episodes or you can follow us on Twitter at EPM Podcast or on Instagram at 80% Mental. Shams, I just want to come to you and, and ask you a little bit about your work in motorsport and, and really as a psychologist, I wonder what lessons you've learned from working with this type of athlete. Have you, you know, what have you learned so far from your, your work? You know, actually, yeah. Peter, earlier on when we were speaking about um, the financial investment required, it is immense. And actually, I would say that that is one of the biggest stresses for a lot of young drivers. And getting started out is extremely tough because of that financial commitment. So some of the things that, that as a psychologist, you know, I'm, I'm really helping them to recognize is, uh, or to work on, is not just developing some of the skills and qualities to allow them to drive at pace uh, and ride at pace out on the track. It's also thinking about some of those social skills, developing their communication skills, thinking about how um, they might um, hold certain um, interviews, um, because that all becomes part of their persona, part of their brand. And so we're also helping them to think about their branding, to attract some of that support, to attract some of that sponsorship um, that they they require. 
And James, I was going to ask you, obviously on race days, there's like qualifying, there's race, well, it's race weekend, isn't it? And there's lots of sort of downtime and then uptime when it's race time again, and then more downtime. Like, how did you manage that aspect of, of performance? Oh, I think, I think you get experienced, experienced about what the format is. I mean, when I used to race, there was just two races on the Sunday. Now there's a, a race on the Saturday now as well, just to give that level of interest throughout the weekend from the press and the TV, as well as it sells more tickets to go and see it um, through the gate. It is it is changing actually over, over the years of, of when the races are, when the qualifying is and when the free practices. The only problem is as a rider uh, by putting a Saturday race is um, it gives the experienced guys a lot more advantage than the rookies and the youngsters coming up because you have much less time to practice and qualify. So being able to switch your focus almost like on and off, really. Uh, I don't know if you had any strategies for doing that uh, when you were racing. The main thing really was superbike racing because there was two races on a Sunday was just recuperating from the first race before the second race. Uh, the fluids that you lost, especially in hotter countries, etc. You know, you were, you could lose two or three kilograms of of, of weight between uh, in one race. So it was about replenishing yourself with the fluids and, and and the energy to then do a second race exactly like the first race. And when it was really hot and well, the rest of it took quite a lot. I used to have a I used to have a wheelie bin uh, that I used to take around and put cold water and ice in. So straight after the first race, I dumped myself in that to cool the body down to get rid of the lactic acid and all the rest of it. And, um, to to recover as quickly as I could to make sure I could perform in the second race exactly the same, which wasn't easy, um, especially when I, I took my fitness training very, very seriously. But the ones that really didn't, you could really see a performance drop three quarters of the way through the second race if you hadn't cooled your body down and replenished yourself fully before that second race. And clearly those are some of the, the physical preparation or, or recovery aspects that you, you speak to, James, there. Uh, some of the things that I know some of the drivers that I speak to also mention that when they have some time out, some of them are surrounded by other drivers. Some of them find that quite energizing. Some of them prefer that because they like that engagement with others, whereas others find it a dis distraction and they don't want to be disturbed or bothered with anyone. And they just want to find some quiet space and some quiet time really working to physically recover as well as mentally recover and, and physiologically recover becomes uh, all part of how you set yourself up to really then go out and perform again. It does. And depending where your performance is at that point in time, uh, allows you to open yourself up and relax enough to open, uh, be open to people and to discussions and to external uh, distractions if you're winning races week in, week out, the bike is working well, you're riding well, the team's great, blah, blah, blah. And you're in you're in Italy, say, and your mum's come to watch you and um, she can't find the higher car keys and she wants you to nip her back to the hotel because <laughs> she might have left them there. And, uh, you know, you've got, you've got two hours before the race starts. Uh, if everything's rolling downhill, you jump in your little car and you take her back to the hotel, you sort that out and then you get your stuff back on, you go out and you win your next race. Um, oh, it's a warm-up lap for you, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but if you're eighth and you've exhausted all your options on what you can bring to the table with your talents, 
and the team have exhausted all of their options on turning that bike upside down and inside out to try and get it to work for you and you still can't and you just get into a bit of a, a cul-de-sac with everything that's when the brain can really come to um, um, really destructive halt and that's a horrible area to be in as a professional sportsman you've tried everything you can the team's tried everything you can um, and it's still not happening for one reason and another and that's when most people block themselves away because they're just desperate to try and find the answers to that and that's why you sometimes you see some people pushing away from not wanting to talk to people or sign any autographs or anything like that it's just because they're so engrossed in trying to find that missing link how would you deal with that shams if you uh were working with a, a rider or a driver who was kind of experiencing that in that hole as james describes it what kind of things might you um do to work with an athlete who's experiencing something like that just feeling blocked in that moment and not mm. yeah i think coming from a strength space perspective i would really try to draw on what has worked well in the past um what they have prepared for um and everything that they have done to set themselves up for this particular event and really just focus on what they can do as they go into that particular race um, you know, you cannot place your attention on things that you have just no control over, but there is always something that you can manage. Two or three things that you can place your attention on when you're in that race and when you go into that uh, situation um, can help really drive your energy and, and, and focus towards that. Do you know the one of the biggest advantages that I was told? Someone said, James, just stop worrying about anything you can't do anything about stop doing that and it's amazing when you go through the list in your head but you can't do anything about them right you literally delete half of the worries out of your brain instantly so do that and that really really helped me because like i was on the grid when things weren't going so well because you know i was lucky enough things went well quite a lot but there were certainly days right where it didn't and and every time i was on the grid oh the bike's not feeling great i don't really know this track really well da, 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 da. well well, you're on the grid, mate. Can you do anything about the bike? No. Just ride it like you've nicked it. <laughs> Game up, right? You don't really know the uh, the, the track really well. Well, well the, the track, uh, no one's going to just like, can everybody just pull off to the side while I do a few more laps to familiarise myself, please, before this race? No, that's not happening. <laughs> so, so honestly, and, and what you've really got to, you've really got to be hard with yourself on really telling yourself what you cannot do anything about because it's amazing what you convince yourself that you can. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a strange but just be hard with yourself can i do anything about that right now before i perform no well get rid of it then and just focus on the things you can that really helped if you can't do anything about those things then it's then you're in trouble still but you know at least it helps <laughs> <laughs> and, and the thing i'd say to that james there is always always something that you can do and, 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 and know you can do well. And if you draw on past experiences and you draw on some of the skills and, 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 and the strengths that you do have and place your attention on that rather than, as you sort of say, the things that you can't worry, uh, do anything about. Yeah. Your brain's not good at being stressed with loads of stuff going on. And, and, and that's why a sportsman's brain or life, they get rid of quite a lot, you know, 
relationships are quite difficult to hold down and everything. anything that's a distraction that the, the, the mind has to just focus on a little bit if things aren't going well the girlfriend's ditched that's ending i just need one or two things right in my life and that, that's why most sports people kind of get to the end and go oh christ um i can't look for a girlfriend now <laughs> <laughs> I haven't got much going on. <laughs> but it, it, it is the stresses. I think it's just the natural human instincts of of, of dealing with stress. Yeah. And this comes from way back, doesn't it, on trying to figure out how to survive. Mm. And um, uh, and, and we, we, we have certain tactics and the brain can only do certain things. And I think what I think one of the key things is 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 really honing in on on giving your brain the best opportunity to do its best job. So, James, if you think back over your career then as a, as a rider, and I suppose more recently as a, as a musician as well, you have your own band, Toesland, um, and you're known for being a classically trained pianist, as you, as you mentioned earlier on. But if you look back over your, your whole career, what would you say is the most important thing that you've learned about yourself? Oh, crikey. Um, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm quite resilient um, because of, you know, I'm 42 next month and um, we've all got a story, haven't we, from, um, from success to failure to, to, to hardships to, um, to, to good times. And um, throughout, um, I feel that I've kind of kept marching forward. And if I've been knocked down, I, I get back up pretty determinedly. So uh, my resolve, my resolve's pretty good with life. And I think, I think motorcycling, uh, racing, I'm very grateful that it gave me a life of health as well because um, I had to train quite hard and be, be very healthy. And uh, now I am nearly forty two. Um, I feel very lucky that I, I, I am in the health that I am. Okay, I've got a few broken bones here and there and all the rest of it, but fingers crossed I'm not too bad. But but actual general health as a forty two year old I'm 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 quite I'm quite ahead of the curve of that because of the life I had. Um and self discipline and respect. I think a lot of people um their self discipline and respect for themselves is, is lacking quite a lot, but it's it, it's not an easy thing to advise on because everybody's life's different. And this is the tricky thing with psychologies. Someone told me when I was having difficulties of coping with not being able to race again and feeling that I understand myself the best. Uh, so I was the best person to get myself out of this situation and understand myself to give myself the answer to moving forward. Um, somebody said to me, says, don't underestimate what you don't know about you and yourself uh, and certainly um, explore some professional help on on professionals being able to understand who you are and why you are like the way you are um, to helping you how to understand yourself even more to to um, to moving forward and getting better and stronger um, so um, um, racing motorcycles and playing the piano gave its own individual uh, things to my life. But um, um, but discussing, having discussions like this, you know, with you guys today as well, there's always something 
by you know by talking to people especially professionals that will just give you that extra piece of jigsaw puzzle that you need for your your life's tapestry to um you know being better and stronger and healthier and um you know hopefully move forward in a better way well james thank you very much i've thoroughly enjoyed uh, speaking with you this afternoon uh, it's been a, a really interesting insightful conversation uh, and I, I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, to talk to us today my pleasure i've enjoyed it thank you very much and uh, shamima youssef as well resident psychologist now guest uh, friend of the show <laughs> been on twice uh, thank you as well for uh, for coming back on to 80 percent mental thank you pete for um having me here but actually you know james um really feel really privileged uh, to have shared the space with you today and so thank you so much for sharing just a wonderful journey a successful journey and and some of the challenges um that you've endured and and how you've come through and the lessons learned and and i've learned a lot, a lot to hear today so thank you for being here and sharing with us Oh, it's a pleasure, Shams. Love to meet you. You too. Uh, Shams, if people want to reach out and uh, and find out a little bit more about some of the work that you do, where can they do that? Empower to perform. I know it's a mouthful, uh, but just go with the word empower and then a digit two and then the word perform. Uh, that's my website. Uh, I'm on social media, um, Twitter, Facebook, uh, Instagram as empower to perform. So yeah, uh, hopefully that that gives them some idea of where to to reach out and find out a little bit about me. Awesome, thank you. And uh, James, obviously, like I mentioned, you have your own band now, uh, Tosland. You're a performing musician. Where can people find out a little bit more about you and what you're up to? Oh crikey! Well, you can find the music on on the usual Spotify and iTunes, etc. Um, and yeah, Instagram, Twitter, and, and and Facebook, all the usual social media outlets. Toesland Band is the uh, uh, is, is the website, um, and uh, yeah, hopefully we'll be recording a third album at some point in time in, in the future. Awesome. Well, we'll get links to uh, all of those details in the episode description. Um, but thank you both once again for uh, for coming on the podcast. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed that episode, and I hope you enjoyed the conversation, which started off being about the psychology of speed, but actually morphed into a conversation about all sorts of different things. Retirement, the nature of success, injury. And I hope you learned as much as I did from our guests, James Tosland and Shamima Youssef. If you did enjoy this episode, don't forget you can find all of our other episodes at 80percentmental.com where you can subscribe and you can leave a comment if you want to. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at EPM Podcast or on Instagram at 80% Mental. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to hear what you think about the episode. And if you've got a couple of minutes and you feel like it, leaving a review on Apple Podcasts is a great way to help the podcast out. As usual, thank you very much for listening and I will see you next time. Hello. I won't you know, see you because it's a podcast.